All right, all right. It is time for part two of the history of philosophers, and we're going to talk about Confucius. Now, the goal, of course, is obviously not an exhaustive deep dive into all of the beliefs of these philosophers, but rather it is to pick sort of one or two major themes and figure out what's going on and, of course, how it impacts us today. And we're going to talk about Confucius, who was born in 551 BC in Khufu, Lu, now Shandong province in China. And this is a point Stephen Law makes. He says, uh, it's strange. I guess I don't think it's that strange. But he pointed out that many of the greatest philosophers were very young children when their fathers died. And, for example, Confucius, his father died when he was three and left the family in dire poverty. But Confucius was taken up and educated by the state and became a teacher. Confucius went for political office and became a minister of justice. And the claim, such as it is, is that, yeah, he was good at reducing crime while he was in office and so on. And, you know, a good deal of what everyone knows about Confucius is derives from a collection of his uh, fragments called the Analects of Confucius, which was assembled long after his death in 479 BC. So the fatherlessness and early poverty of a lot of philosophers is very interesting because, of course, philosophy is morality. Fundamentally, it's, it's a moral discipline. It's the one thing that it doesn't share with other disciplines. Other disciplines have reason and objective standards and empiricism, such as science and so on, and mathematics and engineering. But the one thing that philosophy does, which other disciplines don't do, is uh, analyze morality. So if you die, uh, if your father dies early, and I would assume that, you know, for me, my father leaving before I even remember him being there, as I was a little baby, it's sim- it's similar. Uh, father absence, right? So with father absence, you don't get imprinting on masculinity, if you're a man, of course, and the state shoulders in and in many ways, the single moms beg the state to shoulder in and try and take over the role of father. But that's not a very healthy substitution, to put it mildly. And so growing up trying to understand masculinity, growing up trying to understand the state, which is your father, uh, is a very complex and deep thing, which I will sort of talk about another time. I just wanted to sort of point out this, this thread. So the big thing, the big thing with Confucius is the golden rule. And we'll get to the golden rule in a sec. We'll talk about a couple other things. So he was very concerned about the political and religious strife in his, uh, in his homeland, of course, in China at the time. And so he tried to figure out how can we minimize strife? How can we have a more harmonious and peaceful society? So one of the things he said was, look, you've got to have shared value shared customs, shared traditions, a shared belief system, because the belief system allows you to navigate and negotiate disputes with reference to a common set of values. So, of course, scientists don't engage in, you know, Bloods and Crips style turf warfare in order to figure out who's correct. I mean, with the state, they kind of do through the uh, shining fluorescent bathed abstract blood-soaked halls of academia and grant applications. But, you know, in science 
as a whole, the resolution for scientific disputes is the scientific method, and it's a language that everyone understands. Two people who are trying to negotiate in a language that neither of them shares very well, or they don't both share very well, is, is a big mess because definitions and nuance and shading and so on all get erased by a lack of expertise in the language. And if you look at mathematics, how did we know that Fermat's last theorem was solved? Well, because the rational and consistent proof was provided and checked and accepted. I think this was in the, uh, in the 90s. So ideally, of course, the goal, which I describe in my book, The Future, the goal is to have UPB, rational, empirical philosophy and, and values and, and, and all of that to resolve disputes between people. And of course, if you look at uh, business, one of the ways that business disputes are resolved is with reference to the contract, right? With reference to the contract. contract. How much are you supposed to pay for your cell phone? Well, you look at the contract. And if you don't pay what the contract requires and you've agreed to the contract, then you're, you owe the money, right? So you need an objective standard to resolve disputes. And when objective standards crumble away, which and, and conservatism, of course, for its occasional flaws, is predicated on this belief, that in the absence of rational philosophy, we need to have shared values. And if we don't have shared values, we end up with endless conflict. Now, if you have subjective shared values, in other words, it's not science, it's not reason, it's not ob objectivity, it's not empiricism. If you have subjective shared values, but everyone shares them, well, there's <laughs> a phrase from my, it's as near as, damn it, good enough for government work, right? It, it's, it's close enough to be okay. So if you have a region and everyone believes the same things and has the same methodology for resolving disputes, let's say there's a book of Bob, right? And, and the book of Bob tells everyone how to live. Now, if everyone in Bobland believes in the book of Bob, then at least you have a way of appealing to something to resolve disputes. Well, let's look it up in the book of Bob. And you can see this kind of all over the world, that in the absence of philosophy, you need very strong and sometimes very aggressive moral values or cultural values in order to resolve disputes. So for Confucius, he was looking around and saying, look, one of the problems is that we need common values, we need common traditions, and that's what keeps people together. And, and these involve a lot of rituals, and uh, you, 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 how do you resolve disputes with your parents? Well, you defer to your parents, right? Honor thy mother and thy father, defer to your parents. And how, how do you resolve disputes between the state and citizens? Well, most philosophers, in fact, almost all philosophers that we've ever heard of teach that, well, the, the way that you resolve disputes between you and the state is you submit to the state, right? And Socrates taught that and... Uh, um, Aristotle taught that, and Plato taught that. Uh, I mean, I mean you, you could go on and on, right? Uh, uh, just about everybody, uh, Kant uh, taught that, and Locke taught that, although he was for a smaller state. But yeah, so in conflicts between the citizen and the state, the citizen gives way. Martin Luther uh, taught that, right? So he taught that, he resolved, or tried to resolve, the turn the other cheek and an eye for an eye, right? So in parts of the Bible it says turn the other cheek. In other parts of the Bible, it says an eye for an eye. And he says, well, look, when you wrong the king, 
the king is allowed to punish you because that's an eye for an eye. But if the king wrongs you, you have to turn the other cheek and accept it, right? So being of service to power is a great way to get your name engraved in marble in the history of philosophy. And, well, uh, until the internet came along, it probably was the only way to do it in particular. So, yeah, so Confucius says, look, you engage in something called Li, right? And that's a, a sort of detailed study of your culture, of rituals, of right behavior and respectful and honorable behavior. And because, I mean, the, 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 the Chinese tend to be very intelligent, very analytical, with really, really great uh, sort of 3D perspectives uh, and uh, abstract 3D manipulative perspectives or abilities, and also quite conformist, right? And so when you have a great complexity in China, of course, we think of China as, you know, the Chinese, like it's one blob, but of course, there's a lot of different ethnicities and, and uh, so on in China. So how do we all get along with such a large country? Well, you have to very strictly and sometimes brutally enforce social and moral standards. And those who didn't conform generally were ostracized or, or killed or at least didn't breed. And so you get, you know, fairly conformist society. And of course, there's tons of exceptions. But this is a sort of 6,000 years of China's, quote, stagnation, which came to a rather crashing end in the opium wars in the mid-19th century. And I talk about this in my documentary, uh, Hong Kong Fight for Freedom, which you can get at freedomain.com slash documentaries. So how do you have such a large country, and look, I don't know exactly how large China was back in the days of Confucius, but it's pretty been pretty big forever. So how do you get this, how do you resolve these disputes? Well, you have to have very strongly enforced cultural values, and like ruthlessly enforced cultural values. And a bit the same thing was true in Japan, although of course Japan is much smaller and, and more homogenous, but you know, what, what the what the Japanese did to their prisoners of war was probably a mirror of what their parents had done to them in order to enforce this kind of conformity, which does result in significant reductions in crime and so on. So in the absence of moral philosophy, objective, rational moral philosophy, which is, you know, I would argue very new to society as a whole, sort of post-UPB, in the absence of rational, objective, and proven moral values, you simply have to have cultural traditions that are as enforced on children in particular as physics is on everyone. So that's important. Now, also he says, well, you've you got to have a concern for others. Now, this is not the most original or brilliant aspect of his philosophy, but he had an interesting reformulation of the golden rule. So the, the Christian version of the golden rule, of course, is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Confucius formulated as a negative, not as a positive. And he said, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Now, fair warning, this analysis of Confucius is really my attempt to detonate the golden rule. I, I view the golden rule as a complete and total enemy to philosophy. So just be aware of that. And uh, it's a startling point, and I will really try and make the case. Hopefully, after I make the case, you will at least understand, if not necessarily agree with sort of my perspective. But uh, I have a, a, a cold, laser-eyed hatred towards 
the golden rule because I think it is part of the mechanics of power and I think it is there to exploit us. And I'll sort of get into that as well. So, yeah, concern for others, uh, that's his golden rule, the negative golden rule. And people have to not just believe these cultural values or these social roles, they have to responsibly fulfill them, right? So it's not enough just to have the idea, you've got to have the action. So, you know, kids have certain duties to their parents. And just having those duties without enacting them would be worse than useless. And if you're a member of the government, if you have power over people, well, you have duties. I guess as a justice minister, he had duties to reduce crime and to be uh, just and so on. And so you need particular virtues in order to accurately, consistently, and correctly manifest your duties within society. And so Confucius also said, if the ruler is virtuous, the people will also be virtuous. So you don't lead just by force, by by tyranny and control and power. You act in a manner which inspires other people to follow your example. You are a template rather than a fist to the face. Now, of course, do unto others, sorry, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. So I'll tell you, so this is a little by thing, right? Just so you understand the general theme of this series, sort of what I've got plotted and planned out. The general theme of the series is this. When I look at a philosopher, I'm looking at two things. Does the universality include the state? Does the, universa- does the universality include the state? And does the universality include children? Do they talk about the state and its power? And do they talk about parents and child abuse? Now, philosophers have an absolute requirement to talk about these two things because they are the greatest exercise of power in the world, which everyone experiences. Like, I wouldn't expect a philosopher to say exactly what it's like to be a king, although I certainly gave that a good shot in my novel, The Future. I wouldn't expect a philosopher to say, this is what it's like to be a king, because a philosopher usually is not a king, despite what Plato wanted, that the world will never have peace until philosophers become kings and kings become philosophers. But everyone has a childhood, everyone has parents or a caregiver, and everyone is subject to the power of the state. So... One of the purposes of philosophy, of course, is to analyze the moral obligations required where there is a power disparity. To analyze the moral obligations required where there's a power disparity. Why? Because if there's no power disparity, then generally there's a negotiation among equals. Where there's no power disparity, there is a negotiation among equals. But where there's a power disparity, moral obligation begins to accrue. And it accrues in a linear fashion, and also it accrues in an exponential fashion, the higher that the power grows, the greater the moral responsibility. Now, some power is optional, right? Whether there's a big, powerful state or a small state or no state, this power is optional. Some power is not optional, right? You have parents and children. So parents and children is the greatest power disparity in the world. It can't be altered or changed except by destroying the family, in which case you simply have people with less care for the children taking care of the children, which means the power disparity is even worse, because there's not the limitation of destruction upon the children that would be driven by the need to preserve your genetics, right, and and the bonding that occurs when the child is born. So you cannot avoid the greatest power disparity in the world, which is that between parents and children. And everyone has experienced it, and most people have performed it, right, because everyone's been a child with caregivers. I'm just going to say parents, although I recognize there are exceptions. Everyone's been a child with parents, and 
just about everyone throughout history was a parent. So the first place that philosophers should analyze their morals is upon parents. So lecturing, as Confucius does, and of course he was a government minister of justice, but lecturing the king and the government minister on how to exercise benevolently his power, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? How many people are going to end up as government ministers? Well, almost no one. But he's studiously stepping over the moral responsibilities of parents towards children. Now, of course, he's going to lecture sons and daughters have certain duties to their parents. You've got to do this. You honor their mother and their father. Of course, of course he will, because he wants the teachers to teach his values to the children. He wants to be a famous and world-renowned and much thought of and much beloved and impactful philosopher, which means he's going to appeal to those in power, because if he doesn't appeal to those in power, they will suppress and destroy his writings. I can tell you that for sure. If he is appealing to the future rather than the vanity and power of the present, if he's appealing to heal the future rather than harm the interests of evildoers in the present, then he's going to have a pretty tough time making a a go of it. So when I'm looking at these philosophers, I'm looking at their relationship to power. Power is why we need morality. Power is why we need morality. Power is... Like, if you are negotiating with your friends on where to go that evening... Do you need a lot of moral philosophy? Well, no, because your friends, it's all voluntary. You can go do something else. You can stay home. You're kind of on an equal footing. And I I was very, very aware of this because I went from a situation where I was subject to power, right? So I was a student. I was a graduate student. I was a, a temp. I worked in offices. I was an employee. And then I went with no transition. So being a junior programmer to being a chief technical officer and had, you know, a couple dozen people who reported to me, and not not right away, but, you know, relatively quickly, I went from being very low on the totem pole in academia and in the business world to being top dog, right? There was one person above me who was the CEO. And he pretty much let me do what he want, I wanted because he was not a tech guy. So I went from bottom to top. And I, I did that within the space of a week, Right when I finally quit my job and and went to the uh, business, I had employees immediately, and then it grew fairly quickly. And then I worked in a variety of other places where I was uh, in authority, and I was fully, fully aware. You know, if if an employee said, "I really need to talk to you," I would go in and you know be be open and interested. If you say to an employee, "I really need to talk to you," everyone thinks they're getting fired. Everyone thinks they're in serious trouble, and so you've got to, you know, I worked, as I've said before, I worked on a, how do I tell people to come into my office? And I eventually formulated on, hey, can I just borrow you for a second? Because then it sounds innocuous and it's a way to invite people into your life without frightening them or invite them into your sort of power. So the, the more power you have, the greater moral responsibility we, you have, right? And we understand this. If the secretary asks the boss out, that's not an abuse of power. If the boss asks the secretary out, that may well be. Where the power is greater, the moral responsibility is greater. So, and again, everybody understands no greater power disparity than that between ruler and ruled and parent and child. So, the golden rule, whatever your universal is, this is what I'm looking at in these philosophers, what I looked at in uh, Buddhism as well. I'm looking at these philosophers saying, look, here's, here's the basic equation. You need morality the most 
where you have the most power. You need morality the most where you have the most power. In the same way, if you're Tom Hanks on a desert island, you don't need to diet because your food supply is very scarce and hard to obtain. So you don't have much power over your calories. But if you live in the modern world where you get free government money to go and buy buy ding-dongs, then you need to exercise. Why do you need to exercise self-restraint? Because you have massive control over what goes into your body. Now, Tom Hanks on a desert island or anyone on a desert island, Robinson Crusoe, Marlon Brando, failed. You, You have massive control over what goes into your body in a state of plenty. You don't have it in a state of scarcity. If you are, you crash your plane in the Andes and, you know, you end up having to eat other people, well, you don't get charged for desecration of corpse and cannibalism because there was nothing else to eat. You had to stay alive. But if you're in a city and you eat other people, then you're a Dharma-like serial killer, bunny brain boiler monster who needs to go to prison for the rest of his life or worse. So where you have the most power, you need the most self-restraint. Where you have the greatest access to food, you need the greatest restraint on what you eat. So, and, and of course, morality is necessary because there are people who wish to do evil, right? Nutrition is necessary because there's foods we want to eat that are bad for us. The discipline of exercise is necessary because we evolved to conserve resources, right? To nap after lunch in hot weather where you're going to expend more calories hunting or getting food than you would get from the food, particularly water, of course, through the sweat. So we evolved to conserve resources, and when you can punch into your phone and get food delivered, then you don't need to expend any resources to get your calories. So we need a discipline called exercise and gyms and working out and cardio and weights and all that because we have the capacity to not expend calories or barely expend calories to get any food. So we have the greatest power over our calories. We have the greatest power over our movement in that we're not compelled to, right? To move, we're not compelled really to exercise, and we're not compelled to uh, be hungry. We can sit on the couch and or eat as much as we want. So that's where we need, and everybody knows this. That's what we need. We need the discipline where we have the greatest power. And if because I had power over people by being their boss, and I was one of these bosses that was you know very encouraging, but also perfectly willing to fire, right? Willing to fire people because you know, one bad apple, right? If you have a worker who's not doing a good job or is not consistent or is lazy or is avoidant or evasive, uh, then that's just going to spread unless you, right? So I was very positive, very friendly, mentored people, encouraged them, and also fired them, right? So everyone knew that because they knew people like I would fire people. So knowing the power I had, I needed the greatest amount of restraint. I could make jokes with fellow CXO people. I could make jokes with the board. I could make jokes with my boss, but I couldn't necessarily make the same jokes with my employees because it's a power differential. Everybody knows this, right? More power, more morality. State, parent, most power. State, parent, most morality. So my big question is, okay, Mr. Universal Morality Guy, do you apply your morals to the state and to parents? Because that's where most morality is needed. Now, Confucius would say, well, I did. I said that, that you got to lead by example. you got to blah, 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 blah. Okay. So I would say to Confucius, uh, with an emphasis on the first syllable, con, I would say to Confucius, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Really? Okay. You're a minister of justice. 
You impose your rule, your power on others. Would you like it if other people impose their rule and power upon you? Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Go to the ruler and say, you impose your rule on others. Let's say that someone is about to take over your throne, is going to take over your justice minister position. Are you happy? He said, no, I wouldn't want somebody else to invade or have a coup or take over my leadership position. It's like, oh, so you're imposing on others what you would not choose for yourself. You're imposing your rule on others, but you would not want others to impose their rule upon you. Well, that's the first application of the golden rule, isn't it? Well, how about parenting? You hit your children because their brains are not mature or their brains are in a state of, of less capacity. You hit your children. Okay. So when you get old and you get forgetful and you have your senior moments and you can't remember where you left your rice bowl, is it okay for your children to hit you? No. Okay. So do not impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Never, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Okay. So let's apply that to the state and let's apply that to parents because that's where the most morality is needed. That's where the universality is most essential and that's where the greatest power is. Does he do that? This was my criticism of libertarians. The non-aggression principle, okay. What's the widest violation of the non-aggression principle that you have the most power to change? Well, spanking, circumcision, and other forms of abuse against children. So let's focus on that. No, 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 no. I want to read more Milton Friedman and yell about the Fed. Okay, so you don't care about the non-aggression principle. You just want to pretend to be a freedom fighter without fighting for the freedom of children. If you're not fighting for the freedom of children... I don't really care what you're talking about because it's all a bunch of nonsense. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, this golden rule, right? And, you know, the golden rule, and you know that, I'm sure you know that snarky aside, that uh, the golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rules. So, of course, the Christian do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is very common, and it's also reformulated as a prohibition. Do not do unto others what you would not want them to do to you, and so on. Right now, that's counterexamples. There's counterexamples. Now, when I say respect for property rights is universally preferable behavior, in other words, via, or to put it another way, if I say stealing cannot be universally preferable behavior, there are zero exceptions to this. Stealing cannot be universally preferable behavior. There are zero exceptions to this. And we know that there are zero exceptions to this because it's logically impossible for there to have any exceptions to this. Like if I say to you, there's such a thing as a square circle, do you sit there and say, well, I mean, I get that, you know, my daughter, when I first told her this, she drew a sort of squarish circle and so on. It's like, no, that's neither a circle nor a square. Can you make a square circle? You can't make a square circle. And so you, if you understand what a square circle is, you don't sit there and look for exceptions. If you say two and two make five, you don't sit there and say, ah, yes, but what about an exception to this? It's like, we, we, we don't do that. We don't do that. When things are logically self-contradictory, we don't look for exceptions. That's the power of logical consistency, or rather, that's the power of logical self-contradiction. Right? If I say that an object under exactly the same conditions is both, is both a solid, a liquid, and a gas at the same time. If I say gas, both gases both expand and contract when heated, we don't need to look for exceptions. It's logically self-contradictory. Self-detonating. So, when somebody says, oh, here's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, we can immediately think of dozens of contradictions to that. Which means it's not valid. It's not a valid rule. 
It may be some sort of rough guideline, but it's not valid. The valid rule is one that admits of zero exceptions. So when you say, say theft is universally preferable behavior, it's logically impossible to fulfill. Because theft is asymmetric, as I've talked about, right? Theft is, you want to take my property, or you do take my property, I don't want you to take my property. So if I don't want you to take my property, I don't want you to steal, therefore me, theft is not universally preferable behavior. If theft is universally preferable behavior, then the category of theft completely vanishes. It's impossible to achieve. It's logically self-contradictory. There's zero exceptions ever, no matter what. And even people who've argued against me uh, with the UPB, that Stephen dude, right? He accepted, yeah, rape, theft, assault, and murder can never be universally preferable behavior. Boom, done. Zero exceptions. And nobody has ever overthrown this because it's absolutely, completely, and totally impossible forever and ever. Amen. No matter where you go throughout time, doesn't matter. It is absolutely, completely, and totally impossible for rape, theft, insult, and murder to be universally preferable behavior. Assault is when I don't want you to hit me. There are times where I might want you to hit me. I might want you uh, to slap me because I'm panicking. Uh, I might want you to, quote, want to stab me because I need surgery. I might get into a boxing ring where I accept that you're going to hit me and know that ahead of time, which is why boxers don't get uh, charged with assault. Rape is asymmetric. Murder is asymmetric. One person wants it, one person desperately doesn't. Theft asymmetric. Theft, rape, assault, and murder can never be universally preferable behavior. Never, ever, ever, no matter what. Zero chance ever. So if you've got as the basis your big moral rule, first of all, I'm going to ask, do you apply it to the state? Do you apply it to parents? If you don't, it's nonsense. It's Well, it's worse than nonsense. And if there are counterexamples to the rule, then you have to accept that it's not a moral rule. A moral rule is something that has zero exceptions. I know this is tough for us, right? It's tough for us. A moral rule is that which has absolutely zero exceptions. So I've given these examples before, and this is why I'm, I'm, I'm pounding on the golden rule because, as I've always said, morality was invented to give exceptions to rulers and parents. Morality was ex- invented in order to give exceptions to rulers and parents. Right? If I spent years beating you and then I asked you to support me in my old age, like you're just some, some friend, right? Let's say you're just some guy at school and I, I bully and beat you because I'm bigger and I'm, I'm, I'm 12 and you're 8 or whatever, right? I bully and beat you for years and then I want resources, I want you to come visit me, I want you to take care of me. And you'd say basically, F off. No, I'm not going to come and take care of you. No, I'm not going to be your buddy no, because you beat and tortured me for years. You bullied, you, you hit me, you confined me, you took my stuff. No, I'm not going to, right? So if parents do that to children, then how, how do children end up with this massive obligation to take care of parents forever and ever? Amen. Because of the golden rule. Because, you know, concern for others, uh, you've got to honor your parents. It's good to, you know, to, to, you've got to defer to your parents. Your parents are the authorities. You owe them, you owe them, you owe them. Wow, look at that. A philosopher who became famous, who told victims that they owed their bullies everything and everything forever in a society full of bullies. Wow, what a, what a weird coincidence that the philosopher that everyone respects and loves is the one who says to victims, you owe everything to your bullies, and it requires bullies, the bullies' participation and approval in order to spread the word because the bullies are the parents, the teachers, the government, whatever, right? Oh, wow. So the philosophy that says that you owe your bully's resources is promulgated by bullies. You understand? 
just another form of bullying. And a more powerful and deep one because you can't escape. You can escape your childhood by growing up. You can't escape philosophy within your society. So the reason why UPB is so powerful is because it's zero exceptions. Zero exceptions. Whereas if you have a philosophy where you can immediately think of dozens of exceptions, that's what the philosophy is designed for, is for those exceptions. Right? So let's say that you've said, I don't want dessert. And it's never imposed on others what you would not choose for yourself. Okay, I don't, I don't want dessert. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to lose weight and my cholesterol's high, whatever. I'm, I lose weight. I don't want to feel bloated. I get gassy. I'm losing weight. So I'm not taking dessert. Okay. Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. So you don't choose dessert anymore. Therefore, nobody gets dessert. Does that make sense? No. No. So what about punishing the wrongdoers? Right? So somebody who's a murderer doesn't want to be punished. So he would not impose punishment on murderers. And he's perfectly willing to not have punishment imposed upon himself. Right? Let's say, and, and here's where I have the really big issue. Okay, let's say you're a cold-hearted sociopath, right? And as a cold-hearted sociopath, you say, do unto others, let's do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, okay? And you know that you're facing an opponent who's deeply empathetic. And to be deeply empathetic, you kind of have to be optimistic about the state of the world and the state of general people in general and so on, right? So... I mean, let's sort of I, let me sort of explain that a little bit more. So, one of the things that's happened is is I've swung more from optimism to realism, right? So I was very optimistic about the power of reason to change the world. Uh, I'm less optimistic about that now, and that's just an adjustment to realism, not for us, but you know, for the world as a whole, which is why there are the cataclysms in my book. So, let's say that there's an illness that produces red spots on the face. So, and the only time it's ever infectious is when it, there are red spots on the face. So you want to go and visit people, do your business, and, and, and break bread with people and so on. So you're optimistic about your safety. If you look at people that don't have red spots on the face, then you can go and trade with them. You can woo their daughters. You can whatever, because right? there's no red spots on the face, so you're safe. So you have a way of knowing who's ill and who's well. Now... If it turns out that people without red spots on their face can transmit the illness, then you're doomed, right? You go from optimism to realism. The optimism is, well, I can tell how many people have red spots on their face. It's relatively few, so I can navigate this no problem. This is one of the challenges of COVID, right? They said it was asymptomatic transmission, which wasn't really a thing, but it makes people paranoid, right? So... If you go from optimism, well, I know who's well and I know who's sick and there's relatively few sick people so I can go about my business with some caution to I have no idea who's well and who's sick. It's much larger than I thought. I have to be careful, right? Yeah, well, that's me off politics, right? So you go from optimism and, and I think a bit too Pollyanna-ish optimism to, to realism, right? So let's say that you're, you know, Satan versus an angel, right? Let's no, you know, let's, let's not do theology because that brings the whole mysticism in. Let's try this. Bob versus Doug, right? So Bob is a sociopath and Doug is an empath, right? He's really empathetic, really sensitive, really thoughtful, really cares about other people, wants them to be happy, and you know, he's a nice guy, maybe too nice. So Bob says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Hey, 
cold-hearted emotional manipulation is fine. I have no problem with cold-hearted emotional manipulation. Why? Because Bob is a sociopath, so cold-hearted manipulative crap is perfectly natural to him, and he's very easygoing to do it. He's perfectly comfortable with it. In fact, he's very well-practiced in it. Whereas Doug the empath sucks at it and is repulsed by it. Right? So if you are a boxer and you say, well, boxing is how we should resolve, boxing is how I should resolve disputes with you, and I know that you have no arms, well, I'm perfectly happy and willing to have boxing be inflicted on you and me because I'm an infinitely better boxer because I have arms and you don't. And let's say I also have 20 years training as a boxer. So Bob the sociopath has his whole life experience of cold-eyed, heartless manipulation, bullying, spreading rumors and lies, slandering, you know, just doing horrible things. So Bob says, yeah, cold-eyed, emotional, brutal manipulation is how I'm perfectly willing to inflict that on others, and hey, they can try and inflict it on me if they want, but I've got way more experience. Now, maybe occasionally I'll come across some dude who's like even more dangerous than me, but I, I recognize him because he's like me, so I, I move aside and doesn't really bother us that much, right? So cold-hearted, soulless emotional manipulation. I'm perfectly willing to have that be a standard rule because I'm fantastic at it. It doesn't bother me at all. And the people I'm preying on are empaths and sensitive and don't understand me and don't have any experience and will give me the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to just prey on them all day, all night until maybe they kind of get wise, but I can just move on. I just move on. Yeah, thinned out one herd, but there's a billion bison in the world I can go prey on, right? And it's the same thing with power. So let's say you are really good at climbing the ladder of politics and gaining power over others, right? You are fantastic at lying. You, are, you come across, you've, you've learned how to imitate caring for others while you wish to exploit them. You just, you know, again, you're, you're a Bob, right? And then you say, well, yeah, I mean, anybody who gains control of the levers of power should be allowed to rule. Of course, I'm perfectly willing to have that be a general rule because you're fantastic at learning how to climb the levers of power at, and you've already got proven success in it. So, yeah, that golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, fantastic. It serves the soulless sociopaths at the expense of the sensitive, empathetic people. Because to universalize sociopathy as how you get things done benefits the sociopaths and harms the empaths, right? Somebody who's a pathological liar is like, oh yeah, getting resources through lying, that totally should be a social rule because he knows he's one in a thousand, a real exception. And he knows that there are lots of other people who don't lie and because they don't lie, they trust others and because they've not been trained to to identify predators, he's camouflaged. So he's just going to move from one person to the next, from one person to the next in order to get his way. So the golden rule, does it help you identify evil? No. Because it has exceptions, it's going to be used by cold-hearted people to firmly ensconce themselves in those exceptions while applying the everything else to everyone else. <sighs> so this is my issue with Confucianism. And the golden rule. Now, the other thing, too, is that the substitute is 
generally worse than the cure, right? I mean, a million times I've used this, right? The, the painkillers for a toothache, right? Painkillers for a toothache is worse than the toothache because if you have the toothache without the painkillers, at some point you'll just have your tooth rip taken out, right? Which is probably the best thing for you. It's why, it's why tooth pain exists. It's so that we remove the tooth so that it doesn't continue to infect, infect us, right? You rot your jaw, you can swallow the bacteria, it can affect your heart in negative ways and so on, right? So if you have, well, everybody has to be of the same culture and that's how we are going to get along, well, that's going to work to a degree, but the problem is it's going to increase power because the only way that you enforce, uh, cultural beliefs are those that are not objective, right? So using cultural beliefs as a substitute for objective moral philosophy is requires power. Because if you are going to impose subjective perceptions with the authority of objective truth, you need to pound it into children and pound it into students and pound it into citizens violently. You have to be very aggressive, verbal abuse, ostracism, hitting, whatever you call it. The, the more subjective your beliefs, if you want to pretend that they're objective, then you need violence. Violence is the mechanism by which subjective is transformed into the appearance of objective. So if you have subjective beliefs around conformity, around particular cultural values that are not rational or objective or universalizable, then you need to be brutal about them. If you think about superstitious beliefs, superstitious beliefs that go counter to reason and evidence have to be pounded into children. But science doesn't have to be pounded into children. Engineering doesn't have to be pounded into ch children because it's provable, it's rational, it's objective. So to say, well, cultural norms are how we should run society means that you need an authority, both in terms of education and the state and in particular parents, to be aggressive and downright violent towards their children so that the children end up being so frightened of punishment and ostracism that they are willing to accept these subjective values as objective facts. Trauma is what is necessary to transform subjectivity into the appearance of objectivity. And also, when you have this whole process, so you say, well, we have to do evil in order to achieve conformity. And conformity is only necessary when you have subjective beliefs that are being portrayed as objective beliefs. So we need to inflict trauma, we need to do evil in order to achieve conformity. Therefore, the good necessitates evil. The good is conformity and social peace or whatever, but it necessitates evil. The abuse of power against children, against students, against citizens. Violence, verbal abuse. Neglect. Ostracism, which for children is death. It's a death threat, right? So, the more you have pretend objectivity, the more aggression and violence and abuse and evil you need to do against those who have less power. I mean, when a parent says to a child, you're just a loser, the child doesn't believe it, but knows that if they disagree or they, they act as a not loser and they become successful, that the parent is going to further attack, aggress against them, might kill them, might drive them away to, to their death, right? So this process of transforming the subjective into the seemingly objective requires evil, requires violence and threats against those with far less power or with children virtually infinitely less power. So when you have a moral system that says 
well, cultural conformity is the way to go. Abuse against children, both from parents and teachers, is absolutely necessary to achieve that. So you have a moral system that requires evil, that requires violence against the helpless. In other words, since morality is most required by the powerful against the helpless, that's where you need the most morality, where the power differential is greater, the moral responsibility is greater. But you have set up a system instead where the greater the moral, sorry, where the greater the power disparity, the more wrong must be done. And you call yourself a good person. The greater the power disparity, the more the wrong must be done. Both to cover up the violations of the golden rule and also because you don't have an objective rational philosophy, so you need conformity to cultural norms, which means you need aggression against children, which means that you have to have those who have the most power over the children do the most evil to those children. Ah! So yes, the golden rule, because it has counterexamples and because it demands conformity, it serves evil. The counterexamples are where evil takes up its residence and the greater the power, the greater the evil doing in order to pound people into the shape of this conformity. You have to brutalize them in order to have this conformity. And of course, we know that child abuse in, in China was rampant and the stagnation of the society and its eventual loss to a society that was beginning to treat its children better, like the sort of Western, particularly in, in England. Uh, it, it's no accident that the British Empire arose to some degree after the rise of the novel, right? The rise of the novel promotes empathy. The rise of the novel promotes sympathy for children. In particular, you can think of early Dickens. And that is a generation of people raised with some more freedom. Now, again, a lot of this freedom was turned to negativity because it was harnessed by the state for the point of colonialism. But yeah, it's uh, uh, the, the golden rule it needs to be cast aside. We need a philosophy that requires no trauma to inculcate in others. Right? You don't need to beat children into accepting that the sky is blue. And as someone who has taught moral philosophy to my daughter, don't need a single raised voice, don't need a single insult, don't need any tension, that's right. And of course what happens is the parents who were had this these anti-rational norms inflicted on them through violence as children then end up inflicting it on their own kids in order to avoid the trauma of what was inflicted upon them and in order to avoid the knowledge that they are, their integrity is wrecked to serve power, to serve the exceptions to the golden rule. So yeah, Confucius, wonderful. Hey, let's have a golden rule. Fantastic. Let's talk about this golden rule. Do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Okay. So does it apply to rulers and does it apply to parents? Well, he doesn't even I mean, talk about that. I mean, the absence of children in the history of philosophy is appalling. You could say it's appalling, but it's kind of inevitable. Of course, children are going to be absent from the history of philosophy because the history of philosophy serves power. Power requires the brutalization of children. So any philosopher who defends children, well, well, you don't have to ask yourself, if you listen to this show, what happens to them. All right. So let's turn to the pre-Socratics next. But uh, I hope that you find this helpful and useful. If you uh, listen to this, please help out the show. This is pretty hard and bitter one wisdom, and I hope that you find it of value. Freedomain.com slash donate. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.